We started an eight-week series on the book of Proverbs last Sunday. There's no way that we'll be able to cover all 31 chapters in eight weeks, but I hope to give you a taste. I hope you can learn to enjoy this book as much as I have over the past few months. Already I've heard from a few of you that have gotten into the book of Proverbs and and, uh, already spoken of the joys over the last week of reading the Proverbs. The book of Proverbs, if you do want to get into it, it's easy to bring into your devotions there's about 31 chapters. There's about that many months and uh, days in every month. So if you want to start reading it tomorrow, it's the first of the month. Read Proverbs chapter one. It's what a lot of people have done throughout the centuries to get the wisdom of God into their lives. As you go to Proverbs chapter three, let me give you a recap from last Sunday's message, our introduction on Proverbs. Solomon wrote this book so that the nation of Israel would develop wisdom this word, chokmah. This is not uh, intellectual ability. If you read the book of Proverbs, you won't necessarily make better grades at school, but you will get wisdom, which is translated into skill. You'll live life better. You'll have more wisdom to navigate the problems that you face every single day. That's the prize of the book. So don't come to Proverbs if you're looking to get rich or you're looking to get ahead in life, come to Proverbs if you want to be able to make good decisions in life and deal with people better. So that's what the prize of the book is. But here's the key. The only way for you to, to discover and, and embrace that wisdom is through the fear of the Lord. That's the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of wisdom and it will follow wisdom throughout. What we just did, falling on our face, worshiping Jesus, and through music, that is a uh, great example of fearing the Lord. You don't necessarily get wisdom through travel, through research, through experience. You get wisdom through worshiping Jesus. And so we're going to be in Proverbs chapter 3 this morning. Before I get into the text this morning, one thing I, I failed to do last week that I'd like to do this morning is to give you an overall structure of the book. Now you might think Proverbs doesn't have any structure. If you've ever scanned through it, it looks like Solomon has kind of pasted together a bunch of ancient fortune cookies. Like there's no structure to the book. How can I manage this? Okay, there actually is a large collection of wise sayings, but that's only the last two thirds of the book, chapters 10 to 30 you'll find a large collection of sayings that cover all sorts of topics. And we'll try to cover those in a few weeks. The first nine chapters, though, are very important and they do have a logical structure to them. In these first nine chapters, Solomon will teach his son the nature of wisdom and the nature of folly. And he'll give them these two paths to take. And he'll show him if you live a wise life, this is what that will look like and this is where these decisions will take you. If you live a foolish life, that's what this life looks like and this is where these decisions will take you. So he's trying to tell him the difference between these two paths. It's a very tender moment of the scripture. You don't think of it as a lecture. Don't even think of it as a sermon. Think of it as a loving father taking his son out on a walk, teaching him how to live a good life. That's what the first nine chapters are designed to do. Proverbs chapter three, and my uh, understanding of it is just one of the most brilliant of this section. Beautiful, beautiful text. It will cover a broad spectrum of topics. As Solomon takes his son on a walk and, and says, I want you to develop wisdom, he'll show him a broad spectrum of topics to study. Um, there's so much gold in here that Tim Keller has called this chapter, this section of this chapter, a mini guide to life. And in fact, as I was studying through it this week, my, my, my role as a discipleship pastor, um, th- this, is, this is what I want our church to embrace. There's six lessons here in this text. Um, we're gonna look at the text and study this. So if you have your Bible, Proverbs chapter three, verses one through 12, let's read it together. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. 
For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son, in whom he delights. Let us pray together. Lord, we pause now in front of your word and we pray that you would stir in us, God. I pray that you would move us this morning to hear your word, to obey your word, to apply your word, Jesus. We don't stand in authority over this word, but we submit humbly under the authority of these words that you inspired for our good, for our instruction, for our teaching. I pray that all of our hearts would be open to the word of God this morning. I pray that I would execute my task this morning to preach boldly and clearly and to point people to Jesus today. It's in his name we pray, amen. Let's say that this week you had an opportunity to take a child out for breakfast and your task over a steaming plate of pancakes was to tell that child how to live a full and successful life. What would you say? How would you guide that child to live a compelling, a good life? What kind of advice would you give? How would you motivate that child to take your advice? That's essentially what Solomon has done this morning in our text. He wants to teach his son how to live a wise life. So he's given him six words of advice and he's followed each one with a compelling promise. The outline of the message will simply follow Solomon's six points. That's where we're gonna unfold the outline as we go through the text this morning. But before we jump in, I want you to pay attention to two things that will help you hopefully hear the words a little better this morning. First, pay attention to the nature of the advice. Solomon wants his son to be shrewd. He wants him to make good decisions and to be able to live life well, you would think that he would direct his son's attention to observable data, to things that he could manage and control, but he doesn't. Instead, he directs his son's attention to faith and a God he cannot see, trust and a God that you cannot see. This is a key point that we'll find throughout the book of, of, of Proverbs. Wisdom is born out of faith not out of observation. That's what it means to fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It, wisdom is born out of faith. This is just really impacting me this week as I've thought about this. I think most of us in this room would, would agree that, I hope you do, that salvation is not through works, but through what? Through faith in Jesus alone. So we're saved by faith, and then we're asked to live a wise life. Well, how do you get that wisdom? Not through observation, not through common sense, through faith. That's how you develop wisdom. It's not like God saved you through the blood of Jesus and then he asked you to look up YouTube videos to figure out how to, how to live a, a good life. The same faith that saved you is the same faith that will sustain you and develop you and give you a wise life. Second, 
pay attention to the promises. First, pay attention to the nature of the advice. Pay attention to the nature of the promises. Solomon will tell his son that a life of faith will lead to peace, prosperity, health, favor. As you read through that, you might want to call a time out and step back and go, wait a minute, Solomon, is this an ancient form of the health, wealth, prosperity gospel? Like you name it and claim it, you live for God and he'll make you filthy rich. Let me just emphatically say up front, no. That's not what Solomon is doing here. And you know why? Because there's not a single verse in the Bible that teaches the prosperity gospel. That you invest in God and he's bound to give you what you want. That is wrong. Let me remind you up front, the genre. The Proverbs are intentionally general. It's the nature of this genre of the wisdom literature. If Solomon had nuanced and footnoted every, every single command and promise with, a, with all the exceptions, it would have no longer been a proverb. I'll cover this more fully at the end, but I just want you to have that up front so that you're not thrown off by some of the, the, the nature of these promises. I believe that Solomon included these promises to motivate his son. He didn't tell his son, hey, you need to live a wise and godly life because I told you so. I wonder how many of you grew up in a home that way. Live for Jesus because I told you so. That's not how Solomon teaches his son to live for Jesus. Instead, he says, live for Jesus because it's the best life you could possibly live. If you want to live for yourself, live for the world, it will suck you dry and rot your bones. If you want to have a full life, come to the bread of life. Come to the, to the living water. Jesus will fill you with life. That's what the promises are for. They're going to motivate his son. And so with that, let's look at the six lessons that we find in our text this morning. The first lesson is this. Do not plug your ear to God's word. Do not plug your ears to God's word. Look at verses one and two. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. The first mark of wisdom is the ability to hear God's word. You cannot live a godly life if you're not listening to godly wisdom. You can't just magically bring about wisdom if you're not listening to godly wisdom. This is a very simple theme, but it is addressed repeatedly throughout the Bible because we need constant reminders just to listen up. One of the great texts in the Old Testament is the Shema. Hear, O Israel. Jesus put this on most of his teachings. It, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Don't overlook the power of that statement. Many people will never live a godly life because they won't slow down and listen. The first step into a wise and godly life is the ability to hear God's word. This is a well-timed word for the church. We live in a noisy world. It's actually an understatement. We're approaching pure chaos, aren't we? Today's issue of the New York Times, I want you to think about this, will have more information and data than a 17th century man would have absorbed in his entire lifetime. We are bombarded with data and stories and advertisements and trivial facts that we will never use. This constant stream of information is changing us, isn't it? How many of you, since you've gotten a smartphone, how many of your attention spans have just shrunk? You can't read books like you used to, to, to read. You can't sit down and focus. You're always scattered. That's what this bombardment of, of media and data does to us. It's shriveling our attention spans and taking away our desire for good truth. 
Imagine with me for a moment that you were to, for the next month, only eat Doritos. <laughs> what would happen to you? First, your, your fingers would be permanently orange. <laughs> that would be nasty. Second, you would feel nasty, but you might not even know how nasty you feel. And it, it would w- worse take away your desire for good food, for vegetables, for protein, for the things that your body was designed to eat. It would just slowly take it away. Doesn't, doesn't that happen? You, you get fast food on Monday, you just get it week after week because you just, it, it takes away your desire for good food. The same thing happens to our brain when we overload it with useless data. We gorge ourselves on cheap and meaningless and disconnected messages and our desire for God's word shrinks. We need to guard our time in God's word. Solomon reminds us that the person who hears God's word and keeps it, obeys it, that person will be filled with life and peace. Even if your body wastes away, the soul that hungers for the word of God will grow stronger day by day. And so I want you to think back over the past two or three years. Is your love for God's word growing? Do you look forward to Sunday mornings? where you get to come in with the church body and hear the word of God preached? Have you developed a regular plan to read through the Bible? And have you kept that plan? Just to simply read through the word, do you study the Bible? Do you join small groups and Bible studies and get together with your friends to satisfy a deep craving for the word of God? Do you talk about the Bible at your dinner table? If not, what are two or three things you could do this week to hopefully increase your hunger and your desire for God's word in your life? That's the first lesson. Don't plug your ears to God's word. The second lesson is this. Don't harden your heart. We must open our ears to God's word, but then we must let God's word take a journey to our heart and transform us. It's not good enough to simply hear it. We need to let it form our character. Look at verses three and four. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Again, Solomon didn't want his son to simply listen to good teaching. He wanted the teaching to transform his his son's character. Do you know people like this? They're professional sermon listeners. Like every day of the week we're listening to sermons, but their character just never seems to change. I know people like that. That, That's not the goal of the Christian life. He asked his son's character to change. The virtues that Solomon highlights here were steadfast love and faithfulness. Solomon is setting the bar impossibly high for his son. He doesn't tell him, hey, listen, I need you to be a little bit nicer at school. He says, you need to embrace steadfast love and faithfulness. These are characteristics that God proclaimed about himself. Remember Exodus chapter 34, when God reveals himself to Moses and and describes his character? These are the words that God says in Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in what? Steadfast love and faithfulness. These characteristics of God are on every page of the Bible, but they are most fully demonstrated in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Though he was God, Philippians tells us, he took on the nature of a servant and he died for our sins and it was his love 
and faithfulness that compelled him to come. And now Solomon tells his son, develop these virtues. As we experience God's love and his salvation and his faithfulness, we should become more loving and faithful. This is the second mark of a wise person. This brings up a fascinating point that we'll see throughout the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs, wisdom is always concerned with the quality of relationships. You might be thinking, I need wisdom to help solve this abstract problem at work. And that's fine. That's a good thing. But in, in the Proverbs, the wise person is always seeking to strengthen relationships. It might not help you solve that problem, but it will teach you how to be a better friend. And it will teach you how to love your wife and to love your children and to respond to your parents. It's always teaching us to strengthen our relationships. And so once again, think back over the past few years. What is the quality of your relationships? As you look back over the last decade of your life, do you have a a trail of broken relationships? Or or are your friendships becoming better and better? Think about that. Are are you growing in your desire to serve other people? Are you jumping at opportunities to volunteer? Or do you shrink back? Are you growing more selfish or are you growing less selfish? When when, when you smell the dirty diaper, do you jump at it and go, I'll take it this time? Or do you go, I I don't smell anything. (laughs) What are you talking about? Are are you growing in um, selfishness or are you becoming more Christ-like? If you're bold enough, ask your spouse to answer that question or your children. Am I growing in selfishness or decreasing in selfishness? What steps could you take to embrace God's love and faithfulness this week? The third lesson is this, do not lean on yourself. So don't plug your ears, don't harden your heart, don't lean on your own understanding. Verses five and six, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. How many of you would say these are your life verses? Yes, several of you. How many of you have this hanging up in your home somewhere? These are treasured verses in the Proverbs because they do their best work in our lives when we are desperate, when we're facing impossible situations. Proverbs call us to trust in the Lord with everything. But what does it mean to trust in the Lord? Many of us have memorized these verses, but maybe have you you stopped to consider what that actually means in your life? The Hebrew word for trust here implies, um, it, it, it kind of carries the idea of, of, of laying on the ground, face down, completely vulnerable before the Lord. That's what it looks like to trust in God. That's what a wise person does. Face down, completely vulnerable before God. That's fascinating, isn't it? I think most of us would want to develop wisdom so that we could be in control. We want wisdom to be like a computer program that we could download and use it when we need to use it. That's not wisdom according to the Bible. Wisdom doesn't put you in control. Wisdom throws you fully on God. That's how you develop wisdom. That sounds risky, doesn't it? Why would I give up control and trust in a God that I cannot see? Listen to the promise that is associated with this command. When you trust in God, what what does he promise to do? Make your paths straight. This is a a beautiful promise. 
Because life is a series of choices. There are forks in the road. You will always have a fork. And once you make a decision, you will be faced with more decisions. And once you pick one, you'll be faced with more decisions after that. It is a constant stream of choices. And if it is up to you to choose wisely, you will very quickly become paralyzed. If you're leaning on your own understanding to make choices, you will be just completely lost because you can't see five feet down either of these paths, but you have to pick. And so you'll always be regretting, did I make the right choice? And I know a lot of you live in that place. Maybe you're paralyzed to make a decision because you can't wrap it around your head. But when you learn to trust in God, he will make your path straight. Let that sink in. That's an astounding truth. I heard one commentator say that God makes straight lines out of crooked people. Let that comfort you this week. Let me try to illustrate the power of this promise. Think about your journey into this room. What brought you to Boone? What brought you to this church? How did you end up here today? Maybe for some of you, it was a mistake or an addiction that brought you to Boone. Maybe for some of you, it was a job. Some other sort of, maybe somebody in your family moved and that's how you find yourself here. Maybe you have no idea why you find yourself in that seat. If I were to interview every person in this room and track your journey to this place at this time, it would look like a random collection of mistakes and twists and turns to get everybody here. But that's not how God sees it. If you are trusting in God, we could see it from his perspective, there would be about 400 straight lines pointing into this room right here. You were here on purpose. And you may have thought you made a mistake. You are here on purpose. Trust in God. He is working in your life, whether you can see the big picture or not. Romans 8 reminds us that God is working together all things for good for those he has called. And so I don't know where your story will take you. I don't know if there's a twist or a turn or where you will go, but I know this. If you trust in God, there is a straight line to eternity. Trust in that. Trust in God and he will make your your path straight. Think over the past few years. Are you leaning on God? Are you trusting him? Let me maybe ask it a bit more practically. Are you praying more? That's a good indicator if you're trusting in God. Is your prayer life increasing? Think about the last major decision that you made. Did you research it more or did you pray about it more? I'm not telling you not to research. I'm just saying spend more time praying about the decision that you have than researching. Don't lean on your own understanding. Lean on God and he will make your path straight. Let me ask about your anxiety levels. Over the past two or three years, have they grown? Are you more and more anxious? Are you more paralyzed by choices? What is one small step you can take this morning to begin trusting in God? We're halfway through. Are you with me? At this point in the walk, Solomon decides, let's go ahead and turn around and take it back home. We've done three. We're gonna go three more. Fourth lesson is this. Don't let your eyes get too big. Don't let your eyes get too big. Look at verses seven and eight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. And turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Solomon wants his son to know that pride will derail his life quicker than anything, which is ironic because if you remember Solomon's story, it was derailed by pride. 
That's a sobering reality to us that pride is a temptation that will plague us as long as we find ourselves in these sinful bodies. Think about it. If you begin trusting in God, you will become wise. And when you become wise, you will make better decisions. And when you make better decisions, life will go better for you. And when life goes better, you're in a temptation to take all of the credit and forget that it was God that got you to that place. Don't do it. Don't let your eyes get too big. It will absolutely destroy you. Listen to Proverbs 26, 12. This is a hard verse. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. The proud person is growing in skill and competence. He's making good decisions, but he's also growing in arrogance. And because of that, the Proverbs would say he is sprinting to a cliff. The wise person is growing in skill and competence and is making better decisions, but he's also growing in humility and gratitude. And so let me ask you, what track are you on? As you look back over the past few years, are you growing in humility or are you growing in arrogance? Here's a, a very simple question. Past year or two, have you been wrong about anything? My wife told me not to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I'll say it gently. I'm going to get myself in trouble. If you look back over the last year and you can't think of a single mistake that you made, Proverbs would say there is more hope for a fool than for you. Like a fool could bumble his way through life more than the person that can't think of a single mistake that he made over the past year or two. I got it all figured out. That is a scary place to be. When is the last time you wept over your sins and brought them to the, to the throne of grace, confessed them and repented and received the assurance of salvation? When's the last time you've done that? Are you a grateful person? You can, you can tell when you're around a grateful person. Like you bring out a hot meal and they just start crying. <laughs> this looks so good. <laughs> or you see a sunset and you're just moved. When is the last time you were moved to tears when you considered the power of the gospel? When have you sung the third verse of it is well with feeling my sin? Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. Don't let your eyes get too big. Put them on the cross. So far, Solomon has been instructing his son's character. He's been giving them these virtues. Trust in the Lord. Grow in love. Grow in faithfulness. Grow in gratitude. Grow in humility. The fifth lesson is a little different. He's going to ask him to get his wallet out. He's going to look at his possessions. It's about to get real. Are you ready for this? Look at verses 9 and 10. Don't clench your fists. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruit of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. We will see this throughout the book of Proverbs that one of the clearest indicators of wisdom in a person's life is how he handles money. This is true, by the way, of Jesus' ministry as well. Do you wanna know if you truly understand the gospel? Look at your bank statement. That's what the Bible would have you do. Solomon wants his son to have a strategy in place to deal with money. And so he instructs him to give God the first fruits, to honor God 
with your wealth and with the first fruits, the very best that you have. When payday comes, we should be thrilled because we have a brand new opportunity to give God of our very best. But is that how we give? Is that how we give? Do we have a plan and a strategy? Do we give the the best that we have to God? I heard a story from Tim Keller this week about a farmer. One of the farmer's cows had unexpectedly given birth to two calves. And so he told his pastor that he's going to sell the two calves and then give the proceeds of one of them to the church. He ran into him a couple weeks later and he said, oh, I'm sorry to say it, Reverend, but the Lord's calf died. (laughs) No money this time. It's funny, but it's sad because that's how a lot of us live, isn't it? It's how we give. No plan, no commitment. We just wait to the end of the month to see if we got enough left. But isn't it funny? The Lord's calf always seems to die. The, the, the gift that we had in, in mind, ah, the unexpected expense comes up and we always end up messing it. That's not how the wise person handles money. Do you understand that? That's not how the wise person handles money. He, the wise person honors God with his very best, gives off the top. Because of this, I want you to look at the promise here. God loves to bless wise people with more resources to use. I want to walk a fine line here because I don't want to mislead you, but I want to preach what's in the text here. Notice, Solomon does not say that if you give to the Lord, your garages will be filled with beautiful, wonderful cars and your bank account will overflow and you'll go on European vacations all the time because things will go. That's not what he says. Your barns will be full and your vats will overflow. These were basic staples that were meant to be used for hospitality. God doesn't bless our generosity with luxury. He blesses us with more stuff to give away. It is a joyful life to be a generous person because every time you get something, you're looking for opportunities to give it away. This is essentially Paul's point in 2 Corinthians chapter nine. Look at verses 11 to 12. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Look back over the past few years. Are you growing in generosity? As your wealth has increased, has your grip of your possessions tightened? I could say it the other way too. As your wealth has decreased, has your giving dried up? That's not how a wise person would handle money. Do you have a regular plan to give? Is there a strategy in place? And is that regular gift a joyful gift? Or is it offered under compulsion? I've got to do this. Will you allow the Holy Spirit to guide you in this matter? Over the next week as you look at your, the way that you handle finances. Finally, point six, don't numb the pain. Don't numb the pain. The wise person will know what to do with prosperity, but she will also know what to do when life falls apart. You get a big payday, the wise person knows how to handle that. Your bank account runs dry, the wise person will know what to do with that. Look at verses 11 to 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. This last 
teaching will balance the entire lesson. So far, Solomon has shown his life, his son, that a life of faith leads to blessing. And generally, that is true. But it's not always true. We live in a broken world and exceptions abound. Sometimes godliness leads to suffering. In fact, when you turn the pages to the New Testament, you will find that godliness always leads to suffering. It's a promise. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. The Bible is acutely aware of the fact that righteous people suffer. The Old Testament is too. That's why the book of Proverbs is so close to the book of Job. Jesus is the ultimate example of a righteous person suffering. But here's the great thing about the message of the Bible. Suffering is not proof that God has checked out. He's not turned his back on you. He's not forgotten his promises. It's not a blip in the universe. It's not that Satan's getting his way and overpowering God. No, suffering is proof that God loves you. And I can say that with authority because it's in the Bible. Don't despise God's discipline. Receive it because God disciplines those he loves. Now, Many of you might be thrown off by that word discipline. You think punishment. I did something wrong and so God is punishing me. Discipline is so much broader than that. It is the entire training process that is meant to bring us to maturity. If you're disciplining your children right now, yes, there is punishment, but more than that, there's instruction, there's teaching. You're trying to get them to be self-disciplined. Maybe your suffering right now doesn't have a specific cause but it always has a purpose. It always has a purpose if you let it do its work. This should reframe the way that we view suffering and pain in our lives. Instead of avoiding it at all costs, we should try to learn from it. The wise person will receive it. She will grieve over it, lament it. The, The Bible is filled with the language of lament to help you learn from suffering. A wise person will then trust his soul to God when life falls apart. And guess what? They'll grow in maturity. The fool won't be so brave. He will numb himself from all the pain. Look at Proverbs 17:10. A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. The fool just won't get it. Just won't change. They refuse to learn from suffering. They see it as a hindrance to their plans and so they resent it. They avoid it at all costs and when it is unavoidable, they numb the pain through addictions or bitterness. I would imagine most of this room is either suffering something or over the past few years you have suffered a great pain. How are you responding? Are you grieving? Are you giving yourself the space to lament and to learn? Are you letting God do his work? He loves you. And if you will let him in, he will shape you through this experience. Or have you numbed the pain through a substance? Are you overeating? Have you developed a new addiction? Pornography, television, running, 
to mask the pain? Have you allowed bitterness to cover the pain? What steps could you take this morning to give God control of that pain? We've covered a lot of ground and I've asked a lot of challenging questions along the way. And so as we close, I want you to respond to this, but let me just summarize this lesson on wisdom. Think about the nature of this advice. Solomon essentially says to his son, the world will give you all sorts of advice. They will throw information at you 24-7. Turn down the volume and open your ears to God's word. Son, the world will give you an invitation to get ahead. You know how? By being cutthroat and, and, and destroying your relationships. That's how you will get ahead. Don't pay attention to that advice. Instead, grow in the steadfast love and faithfulness of your God. Son, the world will provide you endless data and research to help you make decisions. I can show you something better. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean on him. He'll take care of you. Son, when things go well, when you succeed, the world will quickly shine a spotlight on you and it will feel warm and it will feel good and they will applause you and you won't want to leave. Don't listen. Humbly submit yourself to God. Go to church and confess and grow in something better. Grow in gratitude that can only be born out of the gospel. Son, when the world, when you, when you come across a pile of money, the world will give you an endless supply of luxuries to enjoy. Even if you don't have money, they'll give you a credit card to go ahead and enjoy those luxuries right now. Don't do it. Honor God with everything that you have. Give him the best. So when the pain comes, and it comes for everybody, the world will offer you anesthetics to dull the pain. Don't take them. They will kill your soul. Trust yourself to a God that loves you and cry out to him. Lean on Jesus. God loves you. Do you see this? The wise person in the Proverbs will look absolutely foolish to the world. We'll reject worldly wisdom and instead entrust ourselves to God. And the world will look at the wise person according to the Bible and say, you are a fool and that is just fine. Because Jesus was the perfect embodiment of wisdom and the world cast him off as a fool and hung him on a cross, the very cross that Corinthians says is the power and wisdom of God. And so do you wanna be wise? Go to the cross of Jesus this morning. Go to the cross of Jesus. It is the wisdom of God. It is the power of God. Throw yourself fully on God this morning.